Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by MathBot.com. MathBot.com is a fun little game that fills a serious hole that the public and even the private schools miss, and that is knowledge of programming and the math behind programming. MathBot.com gives parents a much-needed tool to make sure their children don't fall behind in this new information age. Software is eating the world, and those who don't know how to code will be left behind as more and more jobs become automated. MathBot.com gives kids and even adults like me, the knowledge needed to thrive in this new world. MathBot may just seem like a fun and simple game, but behind the scenes it uses the same method Julius Caesar, Isaac Newton, Einstein, and everyone else were all taught math before the state got its greasy hands into education. This method goes all the way back to classical Greece, the dawn of civilization. MathBot will gradually upload the math and logical skills needed to understand programming into the mind of any player. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword, but now code is even mightier than the pen. So become mighty and learn to code over at mathbot.com. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hello, hello, Liberty lovers, and welcome back to your favorite libertarian podcast that airs every Monday that is hosted by me. That's right. It's the flagship. It's the original Lions of Liberty podcast that I started over five years ago. That really makes me feel old. But uh, every single Monday, I have been bringing you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today, great roundtables like our very popular Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor episodes, as well as sometimes some debates like the one we hosted last week about UBI, getting a lot of great feedback about that one. Be sure to check that out if you didn't catch it. But it is not just me here at Lions of Liberty. We are the original Libertarian Variety Show, and we bring you three distinct and unique shows a week, starting with this show on Monday and followed by Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, and wrapping things up every Friday with John Odie Odermatt and his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. And if you can't get enough content with our three free shows per week, there is even more waiting for you behind the paywall at our Patreon, which you can find over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Our patrons help us to fund this program, help us to do things like go to Porkfest, go to the Libertarian National Convention, and do some podcasts from there, which we were able to do last year, thanks to members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our patrons on Patreon. So again, check that out at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Today's episode is the 383rd episode of this program, and that means you can find the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 383. My guest today is making his second appearance on this program. Having first appeared back in episode 296, he is a senior editor at the Mises Institute, as well as the author of the book, Commie Cowboys, The Bourgeoisie and the Nation State in the Western Genre. He recently wrote an article over at Mises.org calling for the decentralization of the national parks. Of course, very topical with the government shutdown affecting those right now. And he is here to discuss that today. I am pleased to welcome back Mr. Ryan McMacken. Ryan, are you ready to roar? Uh, yes, I am, Mark. I, I am known for my roar-like tendencies, so let's do <laughs> Have it. you had your coffee today? That's my first question. <laughs> and a little bit. Maybe not enough. 
Okay. Uh, now, Ryan, uh, it's been about about a year and a half or so since you've been on the show, so I just want to start off by catching up a bit and find out how things are going at the Mises Institute. Are, are you sick of writing and talking about liberty all the time, or do you still have some more more energy in you there? No, there's always plenty of topics to discuss. Um, and, I mean, it's surprising, really, when you go into some topics, when I, I go in and I check the site and there's always some things that just haven't that don't have extensive libraries on on these topics. Obviously, money and banking um, has extensive uh, articles on it and archives. Some issues that I would like to fill out more include things like healthcare. I don't think that's been explained enough. And then people who read my stuff regularly might notice that I like comparative policy. That is, comparing policies. Uh, between, say, the U.S. and Western Europe or policies between the U.S. and Canada or uh, between the U.S. and Latin America, things like that. I don't think that enough comparisons are made. Often people just talk about that, well, you know, government intervention is bad, so let's, let's just leave it at that. But I would say that some interventions are worse than others, and so I think it's helpful also to identify that at... Uh, to, to note when something is really especially bad versus other things, I think could be helpful information. I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, not all interventions are created equally, you know, y- yes. a, a bomb that destroys a small village, a little bit worse than a parking ticket, for example. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm curious with the sort of state of political polarization right now, um, have you noticed any change in like the feedback at the site or maybe in the comment sections? Do, do things get crazy over there at all? Or are you able to maintain sort of a, a nice safe space for libertarian ideas and good conversation? Well, the site is really good, I think, in terms of comments. The people who actually come to our site and comment there, um, I like them, and there's often a lot of insightful comments. Even if I don't agree with them, they often present information that I think is good. And even the people that disagree uh, often state their case in a reasonable way. I I think you really probably have to go out to the social media platforms we use to find the more incoherent, crazy comments. And I think you get more comments there from people who are totally unfamiliar with what the Mises Institute stands for. And so... They just regard us as, I don't know, some Fox News-like organization or something like that. Or they just simply have no clue whatsoever. Or it's clear they didn't read the article at all. I would say most people who comment on the site, they probably read the article and have something somewhat interesting to say. I think that's what drives me crazy about the comment sections on social media often is you can tell immediately – not often just from the amount of time they've taken to respond that they either didn't read the article or, you know, with a podcast, you know, if I just posted a podcast with a, a sort a headline that you didn't like, and then two seconds later, you're commenting on it. Clearly you have not listened to even the introduction to the podcast, let alone the whole thing. <laughs> Yet the headline has made you so furious that you must comment now. I remember this is back before I worked for the Mises Institute. Uh, and I, I worked a economics uh, site for, uh, for the state of Colorado and, and I remember reading on social media, which was a lot newer back then, um, and we had less experience with it. But I remember my mind being blown when I was reading about data showing that uh, most of the time uh, you can find in your social media data that more people have shared the article and commented on it than have actually read the article, right? Because you can <laughs> you can tell how many people click through the article, right? right. Yeah. And a tons of these posts would show that more people had shared it and commented on it than had ever actually read it. 
through those platforms. So that was just confirmation that we know for a fact that these people aren't reading the articles, but are feeling free to share them and comment on them anyway. So this is just a reality now of social media. This has been going on apparently for years. I probably read that article like in 2009 or something. It's a very strange phenomenon, and I guess in many ways it probably is tied into just, I guess, the nature of social media and, and sort of having instant reactions to everything. We're looking for the likes, the uh, the angry reacts, whatever it may be, and I guess when we're trained to look for that, we're, we're starting to train our brains to just instantly react to things, even if we don't actually know what the hell we're reacting to. <laughs> well, and that's what I try to create an atmosphere around Mises.org of, is that we're not, we're not here just to report the outrage of the day and to get your work done and right. mad about stuff. Now that hurts our clicks a little bit because it's good for clicks uh, to just do the outrage of the day. Um, and, you know, sometimes we have stuff that that border on that when it's relevant to our topics. Um, and I do a lot of like gun and crime related and police related stuff for our site. And that always does pretty well because people get especially outraged about that stuff. Right. Uh, but it's got to have some connection to policy and what we're doing. And, uh, and so I just try to maintain then a readership and, and an attitude for the site that's not just trying to, trying to scrape the bottom of the barrel for just getting people worked up. Well, I certainly did more than read the headline on your recent article. I absolutely did click on it. Um, this, the article is entitled, I'll of course link to this in the show notes, but it's entitled Government Shutdown Shows Why We Need to Decentralize National Parks. And I clicked on it because, well, a, I enjoy your writing, but also this is a subject that uh, I, I do find it very difficult to talk to people about uh, when I describe a libertarian society. And then honestly, one of the biggest objections I get from people is, well, what about the national parks? And it's difficult to talk about sometimes because... I personally love the national parks. I mean, I love going to them. Uh, I don't want them to go away. I want them to be taken care of. So, uh, you know, the the nature lover in me wants them to exist, and the libertarian in me wants the government to get the hell out, out of them. So uh, I don't always know how to reconcile that. So that's why I find you know writing like this very useful. And uh, you know, we're going to dive a little more into the article in a minute. I'm, I'm kind of first curious. Uh, what is your own personal experience with the national parks? Uh, do you have you visited these parks regularly? Are, are you a nature lover at all, or are you just kind of sitting, um, you know, on the side? lines hating on the federal government well if i remember correctly mark you're from out west also is that right yeah i've lived out in california for about 15 years so okay well and i grew up there and my dad would take me on fishing trips um in rural california where there was public lands and then we moved to colorado when i was 12 or so and then so i've spent a lot of time mostly in national forests i don't go to uh national parks very often um, somewhat because they, they charge you money to get in and I'm just that cheap. Uh, <laughs> when I was, when I was younger, they were only like six or seven bucks or something, maybe 10 bucks to get in. But even then I'd rather just go to, I'd rather find some obscure spot in a national forest and do some fishing there, that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah I spent a lot of time I ha- uh, in these areas. I pay to get an annual pass to Colorado's uh, state parks. There's 40 something of them. It's a really nice system of parks uh and those are more fee-based those are more explicitly fee-based uh than federal lands and they're well maintained and i think it was kind of looking at that and looking at how uh parks and wildlife is run on a fee basis and of course there's a lot of literature on this too where i I just started to realize that uh, the federal management is really just not the bees knees on this although what the the, what we're told when we're younger is that, boy, if you didn't have the feds managing these lands, 
Um, well, they would just immediately be sold off to like oil barons and literally to the monopoly man himself. That's right. (laughs) That's right. A guy with a monocle and they would immediately strip mine all these lands. But this is, this is ludicrous, of course, precisely because states like Colorado are filled with people, uh, who no, regardless of political party and ideology who don't want these lands to be strip mined or sold to oil barons and such. And that's a political dead letter. This idea that having these lands taken over by the state government would immediately uh, mean there'd be housing developments put on them. And, and I say immediately, but it's never going to happen. They're just not, there's absolutely no public will to sell off uh, public lands in that way. Uh, the way we're told would happen if we didn't have the good, good people in the U.S. Congress looking out for us. And, and so, yeah, there's just, it's simply not really a party issue out West here in states like this. It's, it's, it's a matter of really, do we need people in Washington, D.C. managing this stuff for us? What are some of the biggest problems with the federal government directly managing uh, these large open spaces, these these national parks uh, that might not be there if you had some more local control? Obviously, one of them we're seeing right now is that, you know, on a political whim, they can just decide, well, we're not going to run it anymore because, you know, we're having a political argument over a wall or something. Right. Uh, well, of course, the shutdown is is the issue where it comes up. Right. And, and the problem is, is they don't have any skin in the game. And so okay, well, these parks are out there. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll run them. We, we've got this big 20,000 foot way of running them where we've got uh, millions of acres that are all managed from one place by one bureaucracy. Uh, the local concerns don't matter. What matters is basically what we decide here. And so now we've got some big federal level border issue that dictates the shutdown. And then you've got all these, all these parks um, that, that are governed through that, which is just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And it would just make so much more sense that it'd be responsive to the people who actually make a living uh, from these parks and the revenue they bring in and who live around them. I mean, one of the comments I said in the article on this was, if you're going to actually have people who control whether an outhouse can be used in Utah or California or Arizona, doesn't it make sense that maybe the people live within, let's say, 500 miles of it? might have some say over that. Instead, we got people 2,000 miles away uh, determining uh, who's emptying these toilets or who's emptying a dumpster uh, out in Arizona. And it's just, it's absurd. How do you see uh, the idea, if, if there was ever political will to do it, I, I'm not even sure if that's something we would ever see in our lifetimes, but let's play play along and pretend here. How would you see decentralization actually occurring? I mean, what would the first step be? Simply the the federal government, I guess, maybe handing those lands over to the states that, that they are currently you know located in? Yeah, that would really just be the first step. Right. Although there's other ways you could do it, too. Uh, it doesn't really have to go through the states. The city of Denver, for example, a hundred years ago, they founded what was uh, what's called the the Mountain Parks System, and just in the city, this is back in the days of the City Beautiful movement. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there was this whole philosophy that cities need beautiful places, uh, beautiful vistas. This is kind of what produced Central Park in New York City, and also City Park in Denver. And we need places for the working man that where they can go on the weekends and, and and just not feel cooped up in their workplaces. And and this will actually not only will it help these people have better quality of life, but it'll also prevent like riots 
and uh, civil unrest and things like that because people will just generally be happier. I've never heard that argument. Yeah. I've never heard that argument for parks before. They prevent, prevent riots. Yeah, right. We don't want people who are perpetually upset and, and feel unhappy. If we they... were going to riot today, but look at this nice park. Let's just sit down. <laughs> right. So the feeling is, oh, look, that you know, they don't feel their lives are quite that bad. So the, the, the labor movement might seem a little less pissed off, basically, if we have some nicer parks in the city. And, and then... Uh, so they even went outside the city limits, the, the city of Denver did, and started buying up these mountain parks, um, which includes a ski resort um, uh, up in Grand County and lots of these enclaves that are in other counties that aren't even in Denver County. And this is just the city went and bought these land, of course, dirt cheap back 100 years ago. And these are all just part of the park system now. Um, and they're city owned. And so uh, there's really no reason. Of course, if you don't want to pay for the maintenance of those parks, you can just move out of Denver, which requires minimal effort. You just need to move 10 miles down the road if you want. Right. Um, it's, it's basically like living in a uh, covenant community in that respect. And so uh, you could do it municipally by metro area and things like that. It doesn't have to be done by state, but just naturally, just because of the way the U.S. is set up, it could make sense just to do it. Uh, in the states. And, and of course, there's constitutionally speaking, there's no authorization for the federal government to own uh, all of that land. It, there's no reason the states couldn't do it, constitutionally speaking. Um, and that's clearly very much allowed in the way that's written. And so, uh, given its obvious legality, why not let that happen? And of course, out west, where most of those lands are, you would find that most of the people there. Um, are, w- would be fine with with the existence of some sort of public land, but if not public, then uh, land trusts, which are becoming more and more used and more and more popular. Um, and and when people see that lands are being leased out and uh, for say oil extraction things like that, these usually aren't what people think of when they think of national parks and so on. These these are usually places out in like Western Colorado, where it's it's just rock and grassless, like nothing. And <laughs> nobody's going there for a picnic anyway. Right. I mean, I like to go down to Joshua Tree. It's only about three hours or so uh, from where I am right now. I actually saw an article earlier that they have actually shut down Joshua Tree. They've actually closed the park uh, this week altogether because uh, it's gotten trash and everything. But when you go to Joshua Tree, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. But I don't know what some evil crony corporation would even do in there. I mean, it's it's a desert. There's nothing there. There's rocks and there's some obscure wildlife. Like I just don't even see what there is to extract. Maybe I'm just not, you know, an expert. <laughs> well, and then another wrinkle, of course, that we've discussed at Mises.org is the issue of uh, the fact that a lot of these public lands are still legally speaking in areas where uh, they were by treaty rightfully the lands of various Indian tribes. And those uh, those treaties were overturned unilaterally by the U.S. government at one point, uh, very often in, say, the 1880s. This isn't like ancient history where you got to go back and get the paper trail. Like, they're clearly in the legal record, rightfully the property of those tribes, and those have been uh, just simply, we just decided one day those were U.S. federal lands. And there's really, it would be actually quite easy to identify any lands that are currently public and not private property uh, and not within like, say, current city government and things like that could then be turned over to the tribes. And that's something we've suggested as well. That would be a different type of decentralization, but it's another way you could do it as well. Sure. I guess from the more, you know, 
libertarian philosophical aspect of this in many ways any 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 area of land that you could identify as having belonged to a group that was unjustly taken from them it's very simple to just say well that's yours again uh, obviously it's been a you know 150 or so years so it's not the same people but if you can identify a certain tribe that you know at one time had an agreement that it was their land uh, i see no reason that couldn't be part of the part of the efforts i suppose to to decentralize things yeah, it's not like Connecticut where all records are lost and it's been 300 years since anybody can remember uh, who had legal uh, title to those lands and things like that. We're, we're talking like times when your great grandpa was alive. I mean, and so, uh, and, you know, it's still, uh, it's still in the law books sort of situation and, and so easy to do. But if we're, as long as we're talking about decentralization, I, I think the, the objection then that a lot of libertarians raises. Well, it's still it's still a type of government that owns it. However, if if you got it down to say you had just a if a county then controlled uh, and had some sort of land trust that, that they founded there, are, am I really supposed to believe that that's really the same situation as when you have uh, the U.S. federal government uh, managing that? And and here's the reason: is when we look at the idea, the fundamental idea here of, of the problem with the state is that it is essentially a monopoly. It controls an area through its, its monopoly on violence, right? And as we've noted, then the close, the farther you get away from that large entity having a monopoly and toward more and more entities having um, competing with each other over control of a certain area, then you're moving farther away from that. You're becoming more and more toward an individual-based type of political system. And so it re- just by definition, then, moving away from one large single monopoly toward many competing uh, areas gets you farther away from the very idea of a state and more toward competing entities. And so you're becoming more and more market-like uh, as that goes on. So just the act of decentralization in itself, even if you then continue to have some metropolitan area or county then controlling that offers more choice and uh, diminishes the monopolistic power of the state in those cases. So um, that's just something to consider. And I'm, I'm unconvinced by ideas that, oh, well, it ends up being some sort of government that owns it. Therefore, it's just a pointless idea. I, I, I don't buy into that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange argument that if it's just going to go to some local county, may as well let the the feds keep it. Then, I mean, I don't, I don't at least from a libertarian perspective, I, I don't see how that really adds up. Uh, especially if the goal is privatization and and sort of individual ownership and control, you're you're much more likely to see that occur when you know something is controlled at that county level. You're much more likely to see, I think, you know, more local private property owners being involved in the maintenance and caring of these parks and this land uh, when it's not the feds just having um, a complete monopoly. And, and I think that's the aspect I like to take. I don't know how successful I am in my arguments with pro- my progressive friends, but I like to focus on that monopoly argument because in almost any other area of the economy, if you ask them, should there be a monopoly? Are you a fan of monopolies? They'll always say no. Yet for some reason, when we come to these parks, that the only thing we can have is this federal monopoly because I, I guess the argument is that they make would be that the, only the federal government is, is strong enough to prevent, I guess, the destruction of the parks or that kind of thing. But to me, uh, only the federal government is strong enough to allow the destruction of the parks by holding this monopoly over them. I mean, like I said earlier, Joshua Tree was just closed down because it got so bad because a lot of people were coming in and just trashing the place. There were also local efforts to clean it up. But I guess the decision was made by 
people that apparently aren't working right now, but can, can still decide to shut a park down to do that. Uh, but that is because of that monopoly control, because these people uh, over in Washington, D.C., who have no direct connection to these parks whatsoever, have just up and decided to leave it out there and leave it for people to come trash. And, you know, unfortunately, that is one of the results of it. Uh, I don't think anybody's claiming that uh, if you just leave these lands completely open with no one managing them, that they're going to stay pristine and clean. Uh, that, that's not what people like us would be arguing, but that is kind of what you hear from people as the critics. They, they will point at what's happening right now in some of these parks and they'll say, well, there's what happens when the feds aren't running things. Well, yeah, there's a couple, the, the left wing argument on that, the progressive argument that, yeah, there's, as you pointed out, uh, at least one of the aspects that they consider that they, they think that you, that the world is, is on the precipice at any given time of being taken over by huge rapacious corporations. Um, and that the only entity that can stand up to them is the U.S. federal government. And you need a large, powerful state in order to diminish the power of, of these mega corporations. Now, I would say the empirical data suggests that it is that, <laughs> that large mega corporations are actually empowered uh, by their cozy relationship with huge entities like the U.S. government. Right. And also... And I need to do a little bit more reading on this, but I, I would suggest that the empirical evidence also points to that specifically on the case of, of public lands, that it's often the federal government on BLM lands, uh, not in national parks um, necessarily, but sometimes even in those cases, but it's more often federal lands that are more likely to be leased out uh, to, to mining conglomerates and things like that because they have large um, federal level agreements with these huge companies that, that small companies in which local voters basically have no ability to, to, uh, to work against. And so there's a lot of behind closed door, smoky room sort of deals going on between federal bureaucrats and these huge corporations in DC that you're never gonna be a party of. And you're not gonna have any ability to have any say in uh, whatsoever. And, I, I think if we did a real analysis of which has that happen more often, is it state-controlled or locally-controlled lands or is it federally-controlled lands, I don't think it's necessarily you're going to find that it's federal lands that are more protected, quote-unquote. I haven't been convinced of that. Yeah, that would be a really interesting uh, study for, for someone to do. <laughs> I probably yes. won't be the one to do it, but I encourage someone to do that. Um, I, I mean, I got to imagine if, if say, some corporation is going to come in and they want to, say, you know, drill some oil wells somewhere, uh, and, you know, there, there's two options. You can have the federal government running it, where all they have to do is basically show up in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, send all their best lobbyists, strike a deal, and now they can do it. Whereas the other option is they have to go and convince this local community who's actually going to be affected by the results of the oil drilling and have to see it every day and what have you, I got to think that, you know, convincing the local people to accept that is going to be a much more difficult process than just flying to Washington, D.C. and throwing that money out there, throwing those promises out there, promising a you know, spot on the board of directors or what have you to some lobbyist that's never going to be connected to that land, or to some politician, I should say, that's never going to be connected to that land at all. Well, and, and that's the second part where the progressive argument fails is because they're, they're fine with a big megastate like the United States government because they think they have some ability to control it through democratic means. Um, but this assumes that 320 million people around the country are forming meaningful coalitions that can have some sort of rational position uh, taken as such a huge group 
now, of course, any single vote then is basically meaningless in, in such a large uh, polity as the U.S. And when you've got um, 100 million people voting in a presidential election, I mean, your one vote just simply doesn't matter. Your one vote, however, can make quite a big difference uh, for a state legislator or at the local level as well, where they're, they're dealing with far, far smaller number of people and you're their neighbor and they're going to have to deal with you uh, in a lot of these cases. Also, it's the feds who rely on huge checks for their re-election campaigns that can only be written by huge corporations, whereas large amounts of money um, are, are far have far less meaning to a locally-based politician who usually uh, doesn't need to buy TV time on some big, large media market and relies much more on retail politics. And this is, this is empirical data that's been done by mainstream political scientists as well, is the big money is at the federal level. And if you want to be able to make a difference as just a non-wealthy, ordinary voter, you're much more likely to be able to make a difference at the local level. And so they're not even correct that it's the federal government that's going to be responsive to them and see their needs. It's, 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 I'd say there's convincing data that they could probably make much more of a difference at the local level on these sorts of issues. Hey friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. What about the fact that the parks are so highly subsidized by the federal government? I think another argument you hear out there a lot is that you know if the federal government was not funding these parks, that uh, you know they, they, it would be much more expensive if you if you simply ran them on user fees. Like right now, if I go to Joshua Tree, it costs like I think thirty bucks or so to go in there, uh, and you know they'll, maybe they'll say that without those federal subsidies, it might cost me. 200 bucks to go in there and now suddenly only the rich and and very elite people like uh like me i guess going in paying 200 bucks to go to joshua tree uh will be able to access these lands anymore um i, I again i think that's an odd argument because why should you know why should a poor person who's you know they're they're being taxed even if they don't pay taxes you know by the uh you know the federal reserve inflating the currency to to give us all the money for these things uh even a poor person is, is in some way paying for parks that they will likely never travel to or use in many cases but what do you say to that, that concept? How do you see things playing out if the federal subsidies were just removed altogether? Right. Any poor person who pays payroll taxes, which is anyone with a job, um, so they're paying 10% or around 10% on their income, which is going to these subsidies anyway. But Ryan, that goes into the Social Security lockbox. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that gets, discussion. It just gets locked day. in there and then it doesn't go anywhere else. Right? Good joke, Mark. I enjoy your sense of humor. Yes. Um, 
the yeah, it's it's of course goes into the general fund and and it's funded for that. Of course, the, the amount of money that goes in, there, it depends on what you mean by heavily subsidized. The the fact of the matter is, is the parks aren't well managed uh, with the subsidies that are put in. They need higher fees as is, even with these subsidies that are being put in right now. However, were they better managed? Were they allowed to function where they brought in their revenues and they could use those in a locally based way? There's actually compelling evidence that a lot of these parks, because they're so unique in the fact they essentially have a monopoly on what's contained in the parks, right? Like there's not going to be any other valley uh, like I forget the name of it now, but the big famous valley in Yosemite, right? Where everybody loves to go and look at the big rocks, like glacier carved rocks. And that's, that's a big deal that there's not another one of those and that it wouldn't even need to be uh, a high fee structure in perpetuity that they would be able to so quickly build up, um, essentially an interest, uh, receiving fund on this that then the fees would then be able to go back down quickly, especially if they were then able to actually manage their money in a more responsible way because it would be specific to that park. And because the way it's done now, you know, why should we be shocked to find out that the federal government isn't managing its money well when it comes into the park system? And, and of course, they have all kinds of extra staff on hand to do all kinds of things that uh, you're not paying extra for anyway, but should be like if you want a tour or to use visitor center and things like that. These are all things that uh, poor people don't have to use in order to experience the park, um, but which which they don't have a graduated fee structure that could be used in a more reasonable way. Another issue, of course, is that the parks, were they more decentralized, say they were done at the state level, there would be different fees then for people who live in that state than who come from outside of it. And this is the way it's done for, um, say, fishermen and hunters. So if I want to go, if I want a fishing license as a Coloradan, that's pretty inexpensive, really. But if I want to go fish in another state, that's like three times as much, at least, uh, in many cases. And this, of course, then would be good for the locals as well, in that they're the ones who are uh, having to pay for the roads that go into these parks and these lands. And shouldn't they then get a discount on being able to use them? And so it, it would probably be a situation where the people who live in Colorado, for example, to use that as, a, as an example, would have lower fees to pay than people who wanted to fly in from out of the state and then experience those parks. I know people would still complain that, well, poor people from Georgia should still be able to get the same price as people in Colorado, but I, I, I don't find that to be particularly convincing. And I, I think there's a good reason why people who live around the park should and pay already for the infrastructure that surrounds it should get a lower fee than the people who come in from outside. I mean, that's that's just the way it's done in a lot of things that are state based. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one thing that I want to talk about, too, is is I've seen a lot of kind of positive stories actually coming out uh, of a lot of these parks about private groups, private companies uh, going in and picking up where the feds are completely slacking. So, I mean, at Yellowstone, there was one story about how all these private businesses around there, they're paying to keep the roads cleaned and clear of snow. They're paying to clean the bathrooms because their businesses thrive off these customers. So they want the park to be in good condition. Uh, I'm kind of curious if you see things. I know in your article, you're not going uh, – 
full and cap, so to speak. You're really just calling for decentralization in this specific case. But uh, I mean, I do think over time, uh, if we were able to decentralize and get things to a more local level, that we could even see. Uh, I know this will sound terrible to my progressive friends, but where private companies are kind of coming together and forming organizations and collectively running these parks because it benefits them and because it benefits their community. Well, we already do see this in the private sector on private lands where you have uh, private lands that are adjacent uh, to a state park or to federal lands in some way and are essentially then a de facto extension of those lands. And then those people, uh, you know, it should shock no one that all of those people don't want necessarily an oil well on their property. They instead build, say, cabins there and then rent them out. Uh, to people to enjoy those lands in as pristine and and unchanged a way as possible. And then, of course, they don't want to see the adjacent lands developed in in a way that would make them less less picturesque. Uh, So there's just another interest there, is that the people actually own the lands around it and want to uh, essentially engage in ecotourism. They're fine with keeping out oil drillers and things like that. So you've got a built-in already interest groups that would like to develop the land in a private way. They, of course, these people are then essentially subsidized. These private owners are being subsidized by by the the public parks and and being kept undeveloped at the federal level, and then they're being funded um, through uh, federal programs and tax revenues and so on because they're providing the amenities that the private developer of a, uh, a private cabin escape, if you will, is then putting next to the park. And they're saying, hey, look at this wonderful valley right over there. Um, that That's increasing the value of their investment. It's being paid for out of uh, federal tax dollars. And so it, uh, we might consider then that uh, not only uh, are they, of course, interested in making sure that those lands stay undeveloped, but but their investment is being helped along by that. And uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, right? Because they <laughs> we're being taxed then to subsidize their investment. Right. It's, it's an interesting aspect. I had never really thought of it in that way that, yeah, essentially any business that is benefiting uh, from the existence of a national park is, in effect, being subsidized you know, by, by all of us. Right. But you can then see, to go to your earlier point, then you can see why those groups then in a, in a crisis situation where there, there might be danger of the park being closed down or whatever, that they would then uh, get people together to make sure that the park stayed open. Or as is actually happening, and they lobby the state government then uh, to intervene to keep the park open. And this is apparently, uh, it's not, it didn't just happen in Colorado when they did that with uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. It's also been an issue with Grand Canyon National Park and Utah uh, has been doing this with some of their areas as well, where they're, they have to pony up state funds uh, in order to to keep the park open. Um, and I'm assuming in Utah, we're talking Bryce National Park and Zion National Park, uh, where I believe the example's there. And so then state funds have to be used to do that open, uh, to keep those parks open. And I'm sure that was a coalition, not just of nature lovers, but also people, uh, mostly probably people who make a living from having some commercial enterprise, whether it be a hotel or a knickknack shop or um, some sort of camping place next to the park. And 
if if they can't access the park, then that's going to keep people away, and that would be disastrous for them economically. Ryan, before I let you go, I kind of want to I want to give you a little challenge here because, as I said, this is one of the more difficult I, I think subjects to talk about with people. Hopefully, listening to this podcast will you know help a lot of people make these arguments. Uh, but the fact is, not everybody you're not going to be able to give everybody who is you know opposed to decentralizing national parks a 30 minute podcast to listen to or 35 minute podcast to listen to. They're just not going to do it. They're going to say you're a stupid libertarian and we don't need to talk about this stuff. But what I want you to do is you know if you're just talking to somebody maybe at the bar over over. A drink or something like that, or you run to somebody in the elevator and the subject comes up during that elevator ride. What's your best just 30 second spiel about why, you know, we don't need to go into the whole privatization thing necessarily, but just the best reason that the federal government should not be running national parks? Well, I think people respond positively to the democracy issue and that I think people, a lot of people think it's local control sounds good to them. Uh, in at, at least out west, they like the idea of having a democratic system that's responsive to the people who are right there and who depend upon that. And and by playing up the fact that we're we're living in a place, and I don't know how it is in other places, but we're clearly living in a place where everybody's fond of this sort of thing, and it's really just not something that they need to worry about that much. And that really, it just it doesn't make sense that you would let the the federal tail wag the dog and all of this stuff when these are really the resources of the people who live near them. And I, and I think people respond positively to that. I think, I don't think libertarians do themselves a whole lot of favors by trash talking the very idea of democracy. There are bad ways to do democracy and there are better ways to do it. And I don't think locally based democracy is necessarily a problem. Sure, um, I mean, Mises referred to, uh, you know, the free market as basically the, the, the ultimate democracy. Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, he was a Democrat, a small D Democrat, very much so, Um, although he wanted it very decentralized uh, uh, in in a variety of ways and was essentially an anarchist in the fact that he thought little bits of pieces of country should be able to break up even at like the village level. And so I think if you can kind of take that communitarian tack and uh, communitarian democratic tack with with a with a pro freedom slant, you don't have to go into that part of it too much. But (laughs) <laughs> I, I think there are ways to really discuss these issues without really putting everything on some sort of hyper-individualist uh, footing, which just isn't necessary. Because as, as I've uh, written articles for Mises.org, is that uh, community-owned property is perfectly possible in a libertarian scheme. Uh, and uh, there, you don't necessarily have to create a system where uh, everything is owned by a single person. Um, you could say, hey, community, communities can team up to have land trusts and all of that sort of thing. And that's essentially private ownership. It's not essentially, it's, it, it is. And uh, there's no reason to reject that sort of thing outright. And in fact, things are moving in that direction because those lands are better managed. These uh, private So you're telling me that even in Anacapistan, we can still have nice parks and, you know, prevent riots. You can still have parks that are owned by your community. That's, you can have a community center. Yes. Well, this doesn't <laughs> sound so bad after new. all. <laughs> yeah, there's quite... Well, and, and I mean, it, you, it, people get upset, of course, because nobody likes their, uh, uh, their homeowners association, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> because they, I uh, stopped uh, bringing that one up as right. the, the you don't example. Want, you don't want to <laughs> use that terminology... Yeah, um, you get a lot of pushback. They say, well, I hate my, I hate my HOA. I'm like, oh, okay, well, then I won't make that argument. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, if you had local communities where people came in and they knew exactly what they were getting into, and, and you all agreed that we are going to pay in uh, X amount of dollars per month to support this beautiful park right in the middle of our city or right next to it or 10 miles down the road so that we can all use it 
uh, I think that strikes a lot of people as rational, and I and I, I certainly don't see anything unlibertarian about it. Well, Ryan, I think this uh, this shutdown and uh, the issues of how it affects the parks are actually a a very good opportunity for libertarians to show, uh, you know, how a point out why the federal government shouldn't be running them. Because if you argue for the federal government to run the parks, you're basically arguing for this to happen every four to six years. I mean, it, it's going to continue to happen uh, as long as we have this polarized system where the Democrats and the Republicans need to sort of show each other up and hit this budget wall every once in a while. Uh, this is going to keep happening. There are going to be more shutdowns and it's going to affect these parks every time so what better reason and what better time to point out why this shouldn't be the way they are run so that's why i want to do this show and uh, your article came up just at the right time and luckily i did click and read it and not just you know comment angrily so uh thank you so much ryan for coming back on the show it's always great talking to you uh before i let you go i just want to uh you know give the opportunity to let people know how they can reach out to you how they can find your work and feel free to promote anything else you've got in the works Oh, sure. All the stuff I've talked about is all just on Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. We update it three or four, or sometimes five times a day with new stuff. So, yeah, have a look if you haven't been lately. All right. Ryan McMacken, keep up the great work and keep on roaring. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Ryan McMacken of the Mises Institute. Be sure to check out his work. He's always putting out great articles about very topical subjects, and that's why I jumped on this one. Obviously, there's been a lot in the news uh, regarding the parks and the shutdown. I mean, I just saw today that uh, there were Joshua trees that are being cut down and people driving into the protected areas and creating their own roads. So, you know, it really is a disaster. And the response of a lot of people is, you know, to be angry at the shutdown. And, uh, you know, why? While I don't love a lot of the results of the shutdown, well, let's be honest, I like a lot of it. <laughs> I like a lot of things being unfunded. Uh, the, the parks being neglected is a, an area of concern for me for sure, but to me it just proves that the federal government should not be managing these lands when any political issue can simply cause the lands to go unprotected and to become damaged like this. So this is an issue I'm passionate about, and when I saw Ryan's article, I didn't hesitate to reach out to him to schedule this interview. So I do think it is very important for us to be speaking about topical issues issues, um, you know, from a libertarian perspective as much as possible. So hopefully this episode will help you to do just that. Of course, if you'd like to support this program again, please do head over to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. I'm going to be doing some new things this month. I'm going to be bringing back the Letters of Liberty. That is a, a sort of a libertarian ask, ask me anything that I do now and again or that I've done in the past a bit. I'm going to be start doing that regularly for our Patreon listeners uh, as well. We are going to have this month a Patreon-only episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. I've got so many great interviews lined up for you guys this month that I really don't have time to squeeze uh, one of those shows into our, our regular rotation. So we're going to do one towards the end of this month that is Patreon only. So no better time to join the pride and head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty than right now. We also have a new exclusive Lions of Liberty Pride knit hat that you can only purchase if you're a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride on Patreon. So please do check that out. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Don't forget, of course, to check out Brian this coming Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land and John wrapping things up on Friday with Felony Friday. That's why you got to hit that subscribe button no matter where you listen to the show, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, I use Overcast personally, even if you listen on YouTube, which I still don't know why some people do, but apparently there are those of you out there that do, and we appreciate you listening as well. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get every single one of our programs. And again, today's episode of Lions of Liberty has been brought to you by MathBot.com. 
The pen may be mightier than the sword, but code is even mightier than the pen. So learn how to build the tools that will bring prosperity and freedom to the world and learn how to code at mathbot.com. That's mathbot.com. Become mighty, my friends. And until next time, live long and live free.